We have been going through the Gospel of Luke, and we have hit a number of stories in chapter 18. We're moving into chapter 19 today, and I want to say something about the parable that we're entering into. Its location is really significant. Um, We have been looking at the ways in which people approach God. If you go through Luke chapter 18, you have multiple instances, either that consistent faithfulness that you see in the widow, or the humility of the tax collector, or the disciples who renounced everything to follow Jesus. You have all these instances where the way people are approaching God. Then what we didn't cover, you have the beggar who is crying out, just have mercy on me. Um, again, a very humble, I need you, Lord, approach. You have Zacchaeus that we just read, who's willing to say, I will restore whatever I have faulted people, Lord. So you have all these approaches to God. Well, then there's this parable. And it sits right at a center where from this point, it is Jesus approaching Jerusalem and going in. Before, it was story after story of people approaching him or approaching the father. Then you have this one parable and right in between is this hinge point. It moves into now Jesus is going into Jerusalem. And this parable, unlike quite a few other parables, it is best taken not as an isolated theological teaching. Like, let me just take this parable and pull out a point and then give you an application. This particular parable is explaining what Jesus is about to do, and it's explaining how the reaction of the people, what their reaction is, and why. This parable is as if Jesus, he's, he's passing through Jericho. He is now about six to seven miles away from Jerusalem. He's heading towards Jerusalem, and he tells this parable as if to say, you need to understand what is about to happen, both with me and with the response that I'm about to get. And I'm going to jump forward. I'm going to give you the response, which the next few weeks we're going to cover in detail. But here's the response following the parable. He is going to ride into Jerusalem being proclaimed as king. And when the religious leaders say, stop them from saying that, Jesus will say, even if I did, the stones would cry it out. He is fully embracing going into Jerusalem as king. The next thing right after that is Jesus looking at the city and weeping because they did not recognize their king had come. And the next scene is Jesus going into the temple and knocking over the money changers And bringing judgment on the temple. That's what's about to happen. That's what we're going to cover the next two weeks after this. But this week is that parable that sits in between. Now, here is the main point that I want you to get. I'm going to say a lot today. And I'm going to say it in such a way that it works like this. I'm going to describe what's happening in the parable. And that is parallel over here to what's happening to the people. It's not exact. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a picture. It's an image. Right? In the parable, they're doing this. And in real life, they're doing something very similar. So I'm going to go back and forth between the parable and life. Right? And at times, you're going to think, wow, there's a lot here. Here is the point. What you believe will determine 
how you live. What you believe will determine the way you think about things, the way you respond to things, the way you think about people and how you respond to them. What you believe has that much impact. Let me give you a brief example. And actually, two examples. One, where I really do believe something. And one, where I say I believe it, but my actions would suggest otherwise. And you just see if you can relate. Here is something that I believe. My children should eat. I believe that. And, and, And I can tell you that my actions... I make meals for them. I go to the grocery store and make sure there is food. The job that I work, at least a portion of that money goes to buying them food. Even the food that they reject, the food that they throw on the floor, I still keep buying it for them because I believe they need to eat. Sometimes I have to pull them away from what they are doing and convince them they need to eat. But I know it's important that they eat. And so I make sure they do. I believe my children should eat. And it determines actions for me. I also believe, or at least I say I believe this, that my life should be organized. But if you go look at my office this morning, you will see that my belief may not be as deeply held as I think it is. Let me describe my office for you. There are six boxes without tops on them, stacked haphazardly filled with books, papers, and other junk all over my floor. There are a few coats. There's some paper. There's a trash can that I don't think has been dumped since Christmas. There are coupons that expired in 2013 that are still there on my desk waiting for me. I looked around today, and this is what I think. I think this is an accurate statement. You can see approximately 20% of my floor. In the entire room. All I have in there are a few bookshelves and a desk. But that's all you can see in this room. Now you tell me. Do I really believe in organization? Or is it something I think is a good idea and I'd like to believe in it. But my actions don't reflect it. I can go example after example of ways. Think about when you look at somebody and you think. I don't trust that person. I don't believe they are a trustworthy person. Does that impact your actions and your thoughts toward that person? Or what about when you think, I think this person is so amazing. Like, I think this is a godsend. Does that impact the way that you think, feel, act toward that person? Our beliefs will determine the way in which we act and think in our lives. Now, I don't want to say that circumstances sometimes don't derail that. They will. Sometimes I really do believe in something, but some circumstances came up and I had to put it on hold a little bit. And also, this is very true. I firmly believe that our beliefs can be changed. Otherwise, I should quit what I'm doing. Because if I don't believe that, then I don't know what I'm doing up here. I But nevertheless, what we believe will determine the way that we are living, the way that we're thinking, the actions that we are taking, right? What happens when the belief is wrong or distorted, skewed, 
What happens when the belief has some truth, but it also has some things that are not true? What does that do to us? That's what this parable is about. This parable is about some people who have a wrong view that has led to a number of wrong things. What we want to talk about this morning is what's wrong with their view and what were the consequences? Because those consequences will be the same for us. Open up your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 19. I realize that was the longest introduction that I think I've ever done to a sermon, but it needed to happen, I think. Luke chapter 19. I want to start as we go into this parable. I want to give you just a little bit of the background. And again, remember, we're going to talk in two different ways. What's happening in the parable, what's happening in life. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Remember, this is Jesus' choice here. As they've heard everything he's been saying, he's telling them a parable. And he offers a couple reasons why. Because he was near to Jerusalem, he's been heading to Jerusalem for nine chapters. Now, this has been a very significant thing for him. He is moving towards Jerusalem, and you know what? It is right there. It's right around the corner. The next story, he's going in finally. So he's near to Jerusalem, and because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, I'm going to come back to that as we move into some of the consequences. He said, therefore, and here's his parable. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, as the people are listening to this, it is likely that they would have had a historical connection. What he's describing is exactly the way, under the Roman system in particular, that you would get authority. Herod had to go to Rome to get his authority to be king. When he died, and, and likely the most the one sitting in their minds might be this one here. When he died in 4 BC, his son Archelaus had to go to Rome, get authority to come back and be the king. So there's a historical thing in their heads where they're going, oh yeah, we recognize this. If a nobleman goes away to get a kingship and then comes back, yeah, that happens. We get that. Now with Archelaus, and I'm going to share this part because you'll see it in the parable. The Jews didn't want him to be their king. They sent a delegation to try to get him not to be king. So just keep that in your mind as we keep reading. Now, while he's gone, he calls 10 of his servants and he gives them each 10 minas, which is about three months or about 100 days wages. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. All right, I have a job for you. I am going away. When I come back, if I get what I'm looking for, I will have more power than I have now. I will be a king. I'll have more authority. I will have more control. Right now, I'm giving you this, which is a small amount. I'm giving you about 100 days wages. I want you to take it and engage in business until I come back. Now, if you're the servant, your thoughts should be, okay, he's going away to become king. If I do really well with this, when he gets back, I am going to get a reward for this. There's going to be some big dividends paid because he's going to be king. So I got to do the right thing for this guy. That's what you should be thinking. There's another group in here. 
Verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Right? Exactly what happened with Archelaus. Right? They do, in the parable, it's happening again. They send this delegation. We don't want him. We hate him. Right? So your background. Historically, you've got Archelaus. In the parable, you have this nobleman. He's doing the same thing. He's going away. He's left people in charge, and they're supposed to do things for his business. But there's also a religious background. And you have to have this to get the parable. Yahweh left the temple. Do you remember when we studied that back in the Old Testaments? Finally, after years and years and years of disobedience, in comes Nebuchadnezzar, takes over Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and Ezekiel describes the glory of God leaving the temple. Yahweh removed himself from his people. And what have they been waiting for all of this time? Yahweh to come back. They have been waiting for Yahweh to return. He has gone, and they're waiting for him to come back. And what would he do when he came back? He would reign as their king. That's what they've been waiting for. Yahweh to return and to restore his kingship. Right? You've got to have that in your head for this parable. Otherwise, you will miss what is happening in the parable. What Jesus is doing over these next few stories. He's waiting. They're waiting for Yahweh to return. Now, what did Jesus say when he first started his ministry? We studied this right at the beginning in August. What is his first preaching? The kingdom of God is here. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And then throughout his ministry, as you're going through these gospels, multiple stories, he's talking about the kingdom being here. One of the most profound is where they accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And he says, if I am casting out demons, then you know the kingdom is here. And you keep getting this, this message of the kingdom being here. All right, that's all the background. Now, what did they miss? What was their wrong belief? What happened? Let's look at the parable first. Verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called, on, um, to, be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Here's an accountability. Um, let's see what's happened since I've been gone. But first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Talk about a reward. I mean, if, if this servant was thinking to himself before the nobleman left, boy, if I do a good job, I'm going to get a reward. I guarantee you he wasn't thinking this. He might have been thinking, okay, I'll become head servant or maybe I'll get a raise. No, I'm going to give you leadership over 10 cities because now I'm king and I have this giant domain to rule and you've shown me faithfulness over a hundred days wages. I'm going to give you a whole lot more for that. And he calls the second one. Um, verse 18. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Now, he is rewarding them for their faithfulness. They are doing the things they were supposed to do. 
And the nobleman who now has his authority as the king is rewarding him for that. Then he calls the third servant. And another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. I'm giving you back what was yours. I haven't lost anything. Okay, I haven't harmed your business. I, I haven't, you know, it hasn't been stolen or anything. Okay, here's, here's your mina back. And then he gives his reason. He said, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. And that word means to be harsh, um, to deal out punishment easily. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. You're unjust. You're not a fair man. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servants. We begin to see the accountability. Here's what I want to point out. They all believed something about the nobleman. And it affected how they lived. The citizens hated him. We don't know why. We just know they hated him. What did that lead to? We don't want this man reigning over us. We're going to send people after him to go to the one giving him authority to say, please don't give him authority over us. This one servant, what did he believe about the nobleman? He was unjust. He would reap where he didn't sow. That this nobleman was mean, that he would punish, that he was harsh. And this guy's like, I, I am so afraid. I want to make sure that I don't mess up your mina or anything. So I'm just giving it back to you so we don't lose it. Their beliefs led to their actions. But the first two servants, as far as we can tell from the account, they had very different beliefs about the nobleman. Their beliefs were, I do what he wants me to do and I'm going to be rewarded for it. And that's exactly what happens. What is the truth about the nobleman? What the first two servants experience. If all the others would have done as the first two did, they would have been rewarded. That's what we see in the parable. Hey, but they believed something else and they acted according to that belief. Now that's in the parable. Now let's go to the actual people, the real life situation. What is the false belief? This is where you go back to the beginning. He says to him, it, it, Luke says, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Without going too much into detail in this, typically the parable is taken in this way. What that means is they were confused about the timing of the kingdom. That the kingdom of God wasn't actually going to come until the second coming of Christ. So Christ would die. There'd be this large period of time that we're in right now. And then Christ would return. That's when the kingdom would come. And the point of the parable is to show them what to do in between the death and the second coming. Here's the problem. In the very next story, Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem as the king. He's already said, I'm here to preach the kingdom. He's already said the kingdom of God is among you. It's right here. The problem is not the timing of the kingdom. It is the recognition of what the kingdom 
will look like. Let me rephrase the beginning of Luke, that little verse 11. It's Jesus doing this. Because they know we're coming into Jerusalem and because they think the kingdom is coming, which it is, I need to tell them what it's actually going to be like. Because what they think it's going to be is not what it's going to be. And they're going to miss it. And that is exactly what happens. When you get to the next story, they do not recognize the time of their visitation. That's the words of Jesus. Why do they not recognize it? Because it does not come like they think it would come. Here is their wrong view. They have a fragmented view, a distorted view of what the kingdom will look like, of what God will do, and how God views them. Here's my brief explanation of all of that. They are holding on to passages like Isaiah 40, Isaiah 52. Here's what those passages teach. When Yahweh returns, he's going to bring blessing. He's going to bring freedom. He's going to set his people and give them joy. He's going to set them in authority, all of those things. But they are ignoring passages like Malachi 3 that says when he returns, he's going to come as a refiner's fire. They have a very one-sided picture of what this whole thing is going to look like. And so the only thing in their mind is this. When Yahweh returns, we will be lifted up and blessed. That's what they have in their minds. And yet, they have not been living faithfully. And so there's a whole other side. There's an entire other side to this that they don't have. They are, in modern vernacular, and tell me if you know what this means, they are proof texting. They are choosing passages that say a certain thing and ignoring others. They are taking certain passages and going, well, this is what it's all going to be like. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not. There's a whole other picture over here that you don't have. And without that picture, you have a wrong view of what this entire thing is going to look like. And this parable is trying to explain it. So that when you look at the next few pericopes, the next few stories... They will make sense. The king will come. He won't be recognized. And he will bring judgment. Not blessing. Judgment. I know this feels a little bit more like a Bible study than a sermon right now. Sometimes I feel like I have to. I feel like there's, the, the passage is so dense and it's connecting so many ideas that without trying to give a little fuller treatment of that passage, we're going to miss that. Now I'm going to move into what will feel a little bit more like a sermon. And it'll be a very shortened one, but it's based on this background. Right? Here's what I want you to see. Jesus has been moving towards Jerusalem for a long time now. And, and he is, the kingdom is here. He's bringing it in. And he's getting ready to present it to the Jews in Jerusalem like he should do. However, the way they have been living, the way they view things happening, it's going to turn out very differently than what they thought. Now, here's the sermon. That was my 20-minute introduction and background. Here's my short sermon. 
what are the consequences of wrong views? If you have a wrong view of God, what is the consequence of that? If your God is nothing but love, what is the consequence of that? If your God is nothing but judgment, what is the consequence of that? If you are taking a particular verse and holding it up, and I'm going I'm to state one right now that is probably the most used passage out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. That passage is used all the time without any context. As if that passage is a blanket, general promise for all people at all times. And yet there's a very contextual meaning to that verse. What happens when your God is not the same as the God that's in the scriptures? Because we are cutting sections out. What are the consequences? All right, here are my three short consequences. He's laughing at me. He doesn't think I can do it. I'm going to go quickly. And you see these all in the passage, by the way. Um, I'm going to shorten a little bit right now by giving you some consequences and not quite doing as much exegesis. All right, number one, if your view of God is skewed, you are likely to miss what God is doing. Because you think he's going to be doing one thing because you've got this view of who he is that you can't even imagine he'd be doing this other thing. When your view of God is skewed, you are likely to miss things that God, that's what's happening to them. They are missing what God is doing through Christ right at that very moment. As he rides into Jerusalem, they're going to totally miss it. Because they have a skewed view of who God is. And you cannot have that view and you can't have a skewed view of God and not miss what he's doing. I saw this picture online and I had to go research it. And it's a picture of a lady who is at Disneyland and she is going down Splash Mountain. And you know they take the pictures at the point where you go down the last you know, big drop and there's a picture of her. And she's got her arms across her chest like this, and she's going. And I mean, it just, it went viral. I mean, for like a year, it's being passed around and everything. And, and eventually, there's an interview with the husband. And this is a little, just very brief background. They met in 2006. He had just had a failed kidney transplant. The dialysis wasn't, I mean, it was kind of a mess. They met, they ended up getting married she loves Disneyland. He's never been there. She really wants to take him, but because of what he's going through, they can't. Well, he gets another transplant in 2011, and eventually they get to go to Disneyland. But when they go, by the end of the day, when they're going on Splash Mountain, he is so worn out that he tells her, you should just go alone. You'll have more fun than trying to take me. And so she does this picture, and then she brings it to him and shows it. And she says, I did this for you. And they're laughing about it together. And he says this. After saying she's the most wonderful woman he could have ever married, he says, and this is a quote, the ability to make each other laugh, even in the difficult times, has been the glue of our relationship. I don't think I would have survived without her in my life. She carried me when I was at my weakest, 
and believed in me when others told her not to get tied down to someone who was sick. That picture that passed around, everybody viewed it in one way. And they viewed it and they had all these bad things to say about her. And, and yet it was the opposite. That was her making her husband laugh during a hard time. Because that's what they did as they went through this together. When you don't have the full accurate picture of God, you are going to miss what's actually going on with God. You're going to think he's beating you up or ignoring you. You're going to think, well, how could he possibly have done this? Because he's, he's nothing but love and grace and there's, there's no accountability in God. And so I don't understand why this could be happening in my life. You're going to miss what God is doing when you have a skewed view of who God is. Even in the way that so many people had a skewed view of what was happening in that picture. But there's a second thing. And this goes back to my introduction. When you have a skewed view of God, it's going to mess up your actions. Not just what you think, not just what you believe God is doing, but what you should do for him. Hey, think about that servant who held on to that mina, who protected it, who put it in this handkerchief to make sure he could give it back. That action was the direct result of fear. He feared the nobleman. He believed the nobleman to be unjust. And so he thought his best action was to give that thing back and make sure the nobleman wasn't ripped off by him. Whatever your beliefs are about God, they will impact your actions. And I would say maybe one of the biggest ones that we have is guilt. So many people think or say God forgives. And yet, we don't always actually believe that. Because we get caught up in these cycles of guilt where we don't really believe that God has forgiven us. There's so many ways where we are acting certain ways. I mean, I don't want to overstate this and I don't want to be mean. But at the heart of the majority of our anxiety is our belief that God is not trustworthy. Because if we really believed that in all circumstances, we would not have the same kind of anxiety that we have. Not saying that we wouldn't worry sometimes. I'm not saying that things wouldn't affect us. But there's a disconnect. And that causes us to do certain things. When we believe something and that something is wrong, it will impact our actions. Um, a couple of years, well, actually it's more like six or seven years ago, um, I was at a Starbucks, which you're going to hear that about every, you know, once a week. I don't know. I, I'm always working at Starbucks and it's not because I don't have an office. It's just because I like to be out with people. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not to be with them. I'm an introvert. It's because I'm fascinated by them. I, I watch them almost like a little lab. I mean, it, people are so fascinating. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but I'm watching all of you right now. But I like to just kind of be out. And so I'm working at Starbucks quite often. And I am, I don't even know what I was doing. It was too long ago. But I was doing something. And it was the final day of Plano, right before summer break. And like every middle school girl in Plano decided to go to Starbucks that morning at like 7 o'clock. 
So I'm in there working, and they are piling into this little tiny Starbucks that holds like 25 people, and there's about 80 of them that are piling in, and they're all talking at once. It's this high-pitched, like, it's like piercing my ears, thinking, hurry and get your drinks and get out of here so I can work. So they get all the things, they have to run off to go to school. And as they take off, at some point, a mom had brought in three of her kids. They're sitting at a table. The kids, the older one was about my daughter's age. She's reading a book. The others are coloring. Younger kids, maybe five and four or something like that, but they're younger kids. And they're doing that, and I'm working. And at one point, I look up, and the mom has stepped outside. And my thought is, I have to go outside to make phone calls quite often, too, um, because it's too loud in here, and I need to get away, especially if I had kids with me. At that point, I only had one, but if we had kids with me, I'd have to go outside. So I'm thinking she's gone outside, and I happen to look out the window, and I don't see her. Now, I have seen enough on the news and read enough things to think weird things happen sometimes, like people just dropping their kids off. And I thought, I know that's not what happened, but something in me is going, I need to make sure. And so I went outside, and I'm looking around, and I don't see her anywhere. And I thought, okay, maybe she went to the bathroom, and I just missed it. So I come back in and I'm sitting there and these kids are just sitting at the table. She does not come out of the bathroom for a while either. And I am beginning to freak out. I am beginning to think I have just witnessed something that I can't imagine like I would ever have witnessed. I think somebody just dropped their kids off and took off. And then the middle child looks up from his coloring and says to his sister, where's mom? And I just, like, I'm, I'm ready to call 911. I am, I, I'm like thinking, can I go over and help these kids? And then I've got, all, how dare this mom? I mean, there are so many things that are going on in my head, and I am freaking out. And the older sister, and now I can really see this because I have a daughter this age. The older sister looks up with this annoyed expression, and she goes, I have no idea. But dad is right there. (laughs) I look over. There's a man working on his computer uh, by himself. I did not see any of this whole interaction. I didn't see the dad come in anything. But my belief about what was happening, my belief about this woman, I am ready to call 911. I am ready to start thinking about the church and like, can the church help these kids in some way? I mean, all these plans are going on in my head. I am ready. And it's a completely wrong belief. But when our beliefs are wrong, they still impact us. And lastly and quickly, when you have a skewed view of God, not only will you miss what God is doing, not only will you potentially be doing wrong actions, but you are going to have false expectations. You're going to have false hopes. You're going, to put your, you're going to put your trust in something that isn't real. Um, without a lot of explanation, because I, I do want to finish up. Um, we had so many people come up to us when our daughter was going through chemotherapy treatments saying, we just know God is going to heal her. We don't know that. We saw so many kids with cancer, and many of them didn't, more didn't make it than did. Just because we're Christians 
just because I'm a pastor, that does not obligate God to save my daughter. And do you know what it would have been like if we believed them and then she hadn't made it? What does that do to us? What does that do to what we think of God? Like, God, you were supposed to heal her and you didn't. And God is going, no, I wasn't. That was your expectation on me, not the other way around. But it doesn't matter because it's broken my heart. It's broken my spirit. I think God is supposed to do these things. I've got these expectations. And when he doesn't do them, instead of being able to step back and go, Lord, your will be done. I'm judging God. Have you ever judged God? I guarantee you, at least part of the reason you did it is because you had expectations placed on him. Because when we have a skewed view of God, our expectations of God will also be skewed. We can't help it. All right. I'll review and then I will close. Something so huge is getting ready to happen. After all of these years, Yahweh's returning to the temple. Finally. Jesus is going to ride in, and we're going to talk about it next week, as king. They're not going to recognize it because they have a skewed view of God. They're going to miss what he's doing. They're going to reject his messenger. And they're not going to understand why they're being judged. All of those things I just said to you, all of them will happen to the Jewish people over the next three scenes. Because they have a skewed view of who God is. You might as well. But it does not have to remain that way. There is a beautiful ending to the story of Stephen and Jordan. The angry splash mountain lady and her husband. That's what she was called. The angry splash mountain lady. When they went back the first time and he could have ridden it, Splash Mountain was closed. So nobody could ride it. However, when the Orlando tourist, it was actually Disney uh, World, when the Orlando tourism got wind of all of this, they gave them a second chance. They paid for them to come back to Disney World so that they could ride Splash Mountain together. And there's this picture of them going down, and now they're sitting side by side, and, they, and there's just huge smiles on their face as they're going down. And I love what Stephen then says. Stephen wrote that while everyone had seen a silly photo of his angry wife on Splash Mountain, he saw something entirely different. And this is his quote. I see the funny, smart, intelligent, and beautiful woman who carried me through life. And I love her more than anything. The truth is, I'd ride into anything or climb any mountain with and for her. If you want to know who God is, that is who God is. You want an actual accurate picture of God? He is a God of second chances. He is a God who calls people to himself. He is a God that desperately loves his people. That is why his son gave his life for us. Because God desperately loves his people. There are second chances with our God.
Will you take it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to know you for who you are. Not what's in our imaginations. Not by the failures of our earthly fathers or our earthly parents. Not by the things that we just wish were true. But by what your word says of you. Lord, let that be our rock, our foundation. Let that be the true picture that we have of who you are. Lord, that we might not miss what you're doing. That our actions would be based on that picture of who you are. Lord, and that we would have the right expectations as we trust you with our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.